Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. So in response to Jonah's fleeing, God sends a great wind, and it says that it stirs up the sea, and it intercepts the ship, so that it and all who are on board are in danger of being lost at sea. Now, it's interesting that in all of the ways that that God could respond, He would use this storm. He certainly could have stopped Jonah long before he boarded the ship. He could have done a variety of things in order to turn him around, and yet he waits until Jonah is aboard the ship at sea, and then he acts. And we discover that that God doesn't just send a storm, it's not just this run-of-the-mill storm, but it's of such magnitude that it could crush the ship. A ship that was made to endure such weather, but but this was something unusual. And as we look at it, we, we, we feel like it's excessive. Right? You've got little Jonah, and you've got this massive storm. What are we to make of it? Well, look with me at verse 4 again. It says, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. And and the writer of Jonah, he uses two phrases to describe the the storm, a great wind and a mighty tempest. And both descriptors that are used, great and mighty, are translated from the same word in the original language. And this happens to be the same word that is used back in verse 1 to describe Nineveh, the great city. And what we discover as the story plays out is that the same word, great, is used 14 times throughout the story. It describes the city, the storm, the fish, Jonah's displeasure among many other things. And it's repeated throughout the story because it's intended to alert us to something. It's it's pointing us to this reality that in the midst of many great powers, many great achievements, many great wonders, many great problems, many great threats, great turmoil, there is one who is greater still. Look with me at 1 Chronicles 29 11 and 12. It says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Now hear this. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great 
and to give strength to all. Did you catch that? In, in your hand, God, it is to make great and to give strength to all. See, here's the point. There is nothing great in the world, good or bad, that is not under God's power and control. And none of the great things have become great in and of themselves. It is only through God's great power that great things come up on the earth. And, and the story in Jonah is pointing us to this reality, that there is a great God who is bigger than Nineveh, he's bigger than the storm, he's greater than all these things that we see in the story. But there's more. The storm is showing us more. Look at the text again. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And as Tim Keller noted in his commentary, the word hurled is often used for throwing a weapon like a spear, launching it at a target. And in this, we need to see that though the storm is great in magnitude and ferocious in its power, it is not a haphazard response of God. See, we may envision the storm as more cluster bomb than guided missile, right? In so much as it's like a weapon, right? And it, it hits its target, but it also produces all sorts of collateral damage. And I think sometimes in the storms of life, we have this view of God, that He's doing these things, and it's, it's working in some people's lives, and then it's just creating this wake of destruction and problems, pain, you know, in the midst of it. But to see the storm in such a way, to conclude that God is acting randomly, recklessly, unintentionally, or thoughtlessly, is to miss something beautiful in the story. See, the storm has a target, and sometimes it's hard for us to understand. The storm has a target, and God has perfect aim. And He's not wasting anything in the midst of it. He is not wasting anything in the midst of the storm. As He's acting through the storm, none of His efforts or activity are accidental or in vain. None of what He is doing is aimless or fruitless. See, God is using it for specific good purposes in Jonah's life and, as we will see, in the lives of the sailors, which leads us to our second point, a great awakening. Let's look at verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Now, the sailors, they would have been very familiar with the waters that they were navigating. They would have certainly encountered significant storms in their time on the sea. But, but as they see, something about this particular storm is different. Different in such a way that it struck fear in their hearts. They were overwhelmed by it. You know, perhaps it was the suddenness that, that, that it came upon them. Perhaps it was more powerful than anything they had ever seen on the waters. Maybe it happened in an unlikely place, but whatever the reason, there was something that led them to believe that this was supernatural. 
And notice their response. What does it say? First, they, they cried out to their gods. Each one, each one to his God. Help us, save us. Now, it's important to note that, that in the ancient Near East, most people were polytheistic. They believed in a plethora of gods who were tied to specific uh, tribes and regions and vocations and heads of state. And so each sailor here is appealing to the God of, of their home, hoping that they will hear, hoping that they will respond, hoping that they have some sort of influence or power to calm this storm. But there's silence. The storm still rages. None of their so-called gods can help because they are not gods at all. And so what do they do? Well, if the gods won't respond, then I'll take it upon myself. Anybody feel this to be familiar? <laughs> I'll do it myself. What do they do? Let's hurl the cargo into the sea. We'll make it lighter. Maybe that will save us. Isn't it interesting what happens in these desperate moments? Right? Their gods won't save them. They hurl their cargo over the sea. And what is God doing? What is God doing? See, when they began their journey, their cargo was a treasure. It was a treasure that when they arrive at their port, it would prosper them. But now in the midst of the storm, there's a profound change. Do you notice this? They cast it off. They throw away this thing that had great value, recognizing in that moment it actually has no benefit or value to them. How often are we trusting in treasures and fail to see that it's not enough? How much do we need the storms of life to reorient us to what's truly valuable. See, the storms have a way of exposing our vulnerability and revealing what truly matters. And we need to see that that's not a bad thing. It's a hard thing. It's incredibly hard. This is not to minimize the storm. This is not to minimize the threat of, of the Ninevites. This is not to minimize anything that you may be going through or enduring. The pain is real. But the grace of God in the midst of it is good. And, and that's what we need to hear. The grace of God in the midst of it is good for us. Now, the sailors, they, they, they realize that their gods are powerless to save, that their own efforts cannot save them as well, and that their goods are of no use to them. And they begin to realize that, that their only hope lay in appealing to something beyond their ability and outside of their knowledge. Right? And, and this, we see part of God's purpose in the storm here. See, God's not only just working in Jonah's life to, to punish him and to, to turn him from sin, but he's doing a work in the sailors' lives. See, God is awakening through the storm. He is awakening the sailors to his reality. These sailors were pagans. They had no idea of the God of Israel. They only knew these, these idols that they had in their hometowns, which they thought could save them, they had not become aware of the one true God of Israel 
whom Jonah served. <laughs> and, and this God, whom Jonah believed had no business working in the lives of pagans, was now displaying his power and his goodness and his mercy to these sailors. These sailors who had no knowledge, who had done nothing to deserve this favor, who had never given a thought or shown him an ounce of respect. Yet, in this perfectly tailored storm, God is pursuing them. God is exposing their need of him. God is revealing himself and showing that he is the only true God and that he alone is worthy of their trust. And this should signal something to, to some of us in this room. See, God is revealing himself to the sailors through the storm. And God's work of revealing himself to people, unexpected people, wayward people, did not end when the story of Jonah was done. God has continued that work of showing himself to people who have no business knowing him. And this is good news. Christ City, this is good news, right? Because we have all been in that boat. People who have been ignorant and far away from God, desperately needing him to show us who he is. And what has he done? In fair weather and in storm, he has gracious, graciously shown himself to us. He's continuing to do that even today, even here as we speak. Look at Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 with me. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That's the story of Jonah. God speaking to people in various times and various ways through his prophets, through Jonah, through the storm. But in these last days, today, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for the sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, of the majesty in heaven. Not only is God continuing to reveal himself, but in Christ he has perfectly revealed himself. Do you see that? The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, exact, exact representation of his being. If you're wondering what God is like, you look to Jesus. If you're wondering what God is like, you look to Jesus. Now, per perhaps today you've come you're new to the Christian faith. Maybe you don't know much about this God that I'm talking about. You don't know much about this, this book that, that we read. You come wondering, what's this all about? Maybe you've heard this before, but you've wrestled with believing it. And we're glad you're here. We are really glad that you are here. But we would hope that this moment would not be lost on you to see the God of Jonah, the God of Christ City, who is showing himself to us through his Son. Through Jesus, who would forsake the glory of heaven to step into the chaos. 
right? The, the one who would step out of the glory of heaven to meet us in the midst of our chaos. The one who through his life, death, and resurrection would grant us grace to live in the chaos. And the one who through his life, death, and resurrection would give us hope for life to come where the chaos is stilled and evil is no more. This is God showing his mercy. And, and today, if you're hearing this for the first time, you're believing this for the first time, praise the Lord. And I would just encourage you, after the sermon, there'll be people at the, at the back during our response time who would love to talk with you and pray with you. And to not miss this moment of God showing himself and just to respond to this good news. Now, turning back to the text, the second part of verse 5, it says, But Jonah, as the sailors are, are raging against this storm, it says, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. See, as the, as the sailors are battling the storm, Jonah is thoughtlessly, selfishly trying to escape. He has no regard for the sailors or anyone else. Doesn't care about Nineveh, doesn't care about the people on the boat. Is only thinking of himself. He's just trying to escape his responsibility. He's trying to escape his sin. And what does he do? He turns to sleep. But the sailors, they, they have no other recourse, and so they turn their eye toward him, hoping that, that he might have access to a God. Maybe his God is different, and, and maybe his God could help. So they turn to Jonah, and this brings us to our third point, a great kindness Look at verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. It's interesting that the words of the sea captain to wake up Jonah are the same, you know, similar phrase that is used when God called Jonah. Arise, call out. Again, we see God's sovereign hand all over this story. And we also see a surprising twist in the story, which, which Tim Keller has described this way. He said, God sent his prophet to point the pagans toward himself. Yet now, it is the pagans pointing the prophet toward God. See, Jonah was a prophet of Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew people, and it was his job, it was his vocation to be aware of God's presence, to be aware of God's activity, to attend to what God was saying, and to act upon God's commands. See, his, his, his simple task was this, hear God speak, convey God's message, do what God's asked. And here we find Jonah and the sailors are surrounded by the storm. It's a storm of God's activity. He's all over it. His fingerprints are all over it, and yet Jonah is unaware. Right? In his rebellion, in his sin, he had become deaf to God's voice, blind to God's activity, and would need to be awakened by an unbeliever. And this is tragic, right? This is a tragic display of what happens when we dismiss our sin and allow it to grow in our lives. 
As Jake mentioned last week, Jonah's flight from the presence of the Lord is not only geographical, right? It's not just a physical fleeing. There's a spiritual reality in which Jonah's physical distancing from Nineveh is paralleled by a spiritual descent away from the Lord. He's become desensitized to God's activity, dulled to God's voice, and he appears to be in a worse spiritual condition than the sailors who had not yet come to fully understand who this God is. It's tragic, and I think it's a warning for us. I think it's, it's to call us to be attentive to our own lives and our own sin, recognizing that when we deny it, when we ignore it, when we do nothing about it, it leads to a horrible place. And so let us not miss the warning that's in Jonah for, for all of us. Let's continue. Verse 7. So they said to one another, the sailors are, 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 are trying to f- figure this thing out. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So the sailors cast lots, which was a, a, a common practice in the ancient Near East among pagan, pagan nations and in Israel. It was used to discern in decision-making or identifying um, responsibility for something that has happened. We see that in the Bible, it was an ordained practice in, in the Old Testament, and that it was even used in the New Testament when the apostles of Jesus um, are choosing a new apostle. But, you know, side note that, that we need to understand that the practice ceased in the Christian church, right? This was a practice for a specific time. It ceased when the Holy Spirit came and dwelled His church, His believers, and discernment would now happen through His empowerment in the community of God's people. So we won't be casting lots today. But the sailors, they cast lots, right? The lot falls to Jonah. And what do we see again? God's sovereignty, His control, His direction over all of the events that are going on in the story. But in casting the lot and it it falling on Jonah, we need to understand that as God shines His light on his life, He is not doing so to embarrass him, to, to have him ridiculed, to shame him, but He is graciously, graciously helping him to see that there's sin in his life that needs to be addressed. He wants him to see that there's sin that had grown in his heart and and that had turned him in his attitudes and beliefs in, in such a way that it was perhaps as destructive as the Assyrians and the storm. That sin was destroying him and he needed to attend to it. See, just as God was graciously using the storm to awaken sailors to his reality, God was using Jonah's call to Nineveh and the storm to awaken him to his sin. And as we look further in the story into verses 8 and 9, we get a, a more clear picture of what that sin is. Look with me. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, Well, I am a Hebrew, 
and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So the sailors, they, they begin to just pepper Jonah with questions in hopes of, of discovering what God Jonah worships so that they can figure out how they might appease this storm. And notice, notice Jonah's response. They give a whole bunch of questions. He says two things. He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Notice how he identifies himself. First, a Hebrew. Second, one who fears the Lord. And, and the order here is intentional, right? It's intended for the reader, for us, to see the disordered priorities of Jonah's life. That he is more formed and influenced by his national identity than his relationship with God. And that he believes he is right in rejecting God's call. Why? Because his highest value is serving his nation. And his greatest desire is protecting his privilege. So in his mind, in his heart, the best course of action, reject God and go my own way. And he's just blind to it all. He can't see that his nationality has become his God. He can't see that his actions betray his profession of faith. I mean, what a joke that Jonah would stand there and say, I fear the Lord. <laughs> and yet, he's standing in on a boat in the middle of the ocean, trying to get as far away from him as possible. It's laughable. But perhaps the most sad thing that he can't see that in his sin, in his condition, he is in as much need of mercy as the Assyrians and the sailors. And, and because he fails to see his need of mercy, there's no place in it in his life for others. Did you hear that? His failure, his short-sighted view of God's mercy, his sense that he doesn't need it, has shaped his life in such a way that he would, would not give it to the Assyrians, to the sailors, to any undeserving soul. And I think we have to ask ourselves, take stock of our own sense of our need of God's mercy, our own recognition that we are wholly dependent on Him, our own uh, acknowledgement that, that we don't deserve it and yet He gives it. Because if we're missing that, we will always struggle to be a merciful people to one another and to our neighbors. It always goes in, in that flow. We can only be a merciful people to others if we first understand the mercy of God in our lives. And we can't miss that, Christ City. And if we are missing this in this moment, if, if we see the fruit of unmercifulness, perhaps we need to go again to be reminded of, of this merciful God who has given us what we don't deserve. And Jonah just can't see it. And, and what we discover, sadly, that it's going to take more than a storm for him to, to get it. A lot more than a storm. 
But the sailors, and this is just beautiful, the sailors, on the other hand, they seem much quicker to grasp this, to, to see that there's a God at work, there's something happening, and that they need to attend to it. Look at verse 10. It gives us a clue. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And what do we see here is that, that where Jonah claims to fear the Lord, the sailors actually do. And what's the difference? I think it's in how they see the storm. I think it's just in how they see the storm. That God is doing something, Jonah's blind to it, but the sailors are attentive to it. And I think this leads us to ask, in the, the midst of life's trials and storms and difficulties, what do we believe about God? What do we see when life gets hard? What do we believe? What do we trust? What do we turn to? And I think a main thrust of this passage is calling us as the people of God to trust Him when life gets hard, to trust Him when He calls us to hard things, to recognize that He is in control, to recognize that He is good, to recognize that He is merciful, to recognize that He is present and active doing good things in hard things, in difficult things. I think we need to attend to this. There's a book that Jake mentioned to me this week. It's called, Hard is Not the Same Thing as Bad. And, and the, the title strikes a nerve in our culture, doesn't it, right? A culture that, that has been formed by the idea that life is meant to be easy. Right? That the goal of life is problem-free living. And that when hard things come upon us, we should expend every effort to avoid them, not unlike Jonah, right? Because in, in the minds of many, in, in our city, in our world, hard equals bad. And, and perhaps for some of us here today, we, we have the same kind of thinking. And we base our decisions upon what is easy rather than what is right and good in God's eyes. But in the story of Jonah, God is reorienting us to see that in the hard moments, in the hard calls, in the overwhelming things, God is faithful, He's in control, He's working, and He's doing good things. And so should we be called into those things, we can lean in, we can lean into Him and trust that He's good and know that He's good. This, this is the story of Jonah a God who is exposing the prophet to his, who he is that is changing his life in the midst of hard things. It's also the story of the church. This is what God has been doing for generations as he calls his people to hard things, to reveal who he is, and to change who we are. And this is also the story of Christ City. And today, in South Van, they are actually celebrating 10 years of this story. Yeah, 10 years of God's faithfulness, calling His people to hard things, revealing His greatness and glory, 
and doing a work in them. Why? So that they could go to the neighbors, to the city, to the people who need to hear about God's mercy. And now we're going to watch a video um, that tells the story. To us, Christ City means God's people loving the Lord, worshiping together. The biblical Christ City teaching. is a place where the gospel is central to everything that we do. Christ City is my spiritual home. It's where I want to gather every Sunday. To worship on Sunday morning and also midweek programs. The word home keeps coming to mind for me. We learn about Jesus and we learn about our We enjoy the community so much. Gathering with the church is very helpful. Christ City is, for me, tangible evidence of God's faithfulness that when He leads you, uh, you can trust Him. We would like to go back, further back, actually a lot back. 1970, when we first moved to Canada, and we were looking for a church, and some people suggested to us that Vancouver MB Church on 43rd was a good church to go to. We had wonderful times here over the years, but then there came also a time where the church got smaller, people moved, people left. There was a lot of people that were moving out of the city and we were losing members and the, the congregation was diminishing in numbers and so it was more difficult to do church. We're having trouble getting traction and there was a real challenge getting that critical mass. We were wondering how will this all mm -hmm. continue and um, we were a little discouraged. There was a weekly prayer meeting that was happening on Monday nights, and we were praying for some revival at our church. We were really praying that this building would become a place that would be filled with families and children from the local community. One day, we heard that the elders of the church were gathering and seeking the Lord on how to continue here. We heard also that they were thinking outside the box. Well, what would that mean? We needed an out-of-the-box solution not just a standard, go and hire another pastor, canvas the, the area for more congregants. It needed something new, it needed something different. We heard about this other church that was being planted in the area and we didn't know anything about them. And we heard from a friend that we should get in touch with this other church and see what was happening there. And so we had a meeting as South Hill leadership together with a guy named Brett Landry. I remember sensing a call to plant a church in Vancouver since before we got married. And we hadn't been here. We didn't know the city. We didn't know the need. We didn't know why. We were living in Red Deer, Alberta at the time. Brett had this undeniable call to plant a church in Vancouver. And I had no choice but to get on my knees before God and, and really truly ask him if he would lead us. The Lord gave me this verse that day that says, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake, for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. The Lord had to form us into the kind of people who could plant and lead a church. The Lord had to build into us a lot of things. Uh, we were never alone in the conversation. We were never alone in the journey, uh, yet it was a massive step of faith. We were connected with uh, Brett and Allison, who were going to plant a church here in South Vancouver. And he came in and he shared the vision of Christ City Church. 
And he talked about a vision and a network of neighborhood churches. And we thought, wow, this, this really sounds like something we can get after. And it very quickly became clear to us that uh, the best course of action for us uh, would be to turn the keys over to Christ City and let there be a fresh church plan. They approached us and said, we believe that we are called to conclude our season of ministry at the same time as it seems as though God has you beginning a season of ministry. Why don't you move into this building, plant your church here in our building, and we'll just give you the keys. We understood that the church was not ours. This was God's church. And so we had to give it over to God. And we, we didn't know exactly what that was going to be, honestly. We didn't know Christ City. We didn't know the people but we felt God was leading us in that direction to be obedient to him and to just release it into his care. What they didn't know is that we'd been praying for two years that we would have a church building that we would be able to plant in. Uh, with real estate costs being what they are and development being what it is in this city, we knew that that would have to be an act of God. And so, yeah, in, in the summer of 2013, they handed us the keys as a gift. It was very, very overwhelming to see how you can have amazing plans and you can be following God and then He has a better plan. Yeah. And He's so faithful and He really did provide above and beyond what we could have asked as we were getting ready to plant Christ City. They said, hey, we were hoping to plant with 100 people. And right away, you know, we went home, we talked about it for, I think, for a couple minutes and said, yeah, absolutely, this is where we need to be. The first day this church opened up again, we came back here and uh, we haven't gone anywhere else since. <laughs> we feel we belong. Yeah. The good Lord has answered our prayers in such a, a beautiful way that now you think about how our church is filled with young people, young couples, and that is such an answer to prayer. God has more than answered the prayers that we prayed a long time ago. I think initially when we prayed, we prayed in faith, but we did not have vision for this abundance that God has provided in community and the way that he's been at work, not just here in Vancouver, but now also in other neighborhoods. Out of Christ City South Vancouver, we were able to then plant a neighborhood church in Kitsilano and then East Van and then just very recently uh, in Surrey. And the fruit that we have had now in 10 years is visible with the fourth church plant coming. That is only what God can do. It's just been amazing to see how God has worked in this neighborhood, planting other churches, planting now in Surrey, and maybe more planting to come. I see the growth of the church through seeing the growth of the children, not just the numbers of how many kids there are now, but how they're talking about the gospel and how children become youth leaders and they're, you know, mentoring the younger kids. I think that's an amazing indication of how this church has grown. Christ City is, <laughs> it's a dream. God has been so faithful and I'm so thankful that we said yes, that we took that leap of faith and that we trusted His faithfulness. God is at work in individual lives and He has changed me from being here. I have seen God using Christ City as a place where people can come and feel safe to share their burdens and to receive care. I can honestly say that through the power of the 
teaching and the messages, that has just reoriented my life to, to point to what matters. And it's, it's Jesus. My prayer for Christ City is that we would stay grounded on the truth of the gospel, the person and the work of Jesus, that Jesus came and he died and he gave his life for the church so that we could be an expression of his love to the world who are broken and in need of him. Nothing we're doing is new. It's just a continuation of what Jesus has always been doing. He made a promise that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And here we are, faithfully serving Jesus in 2023, having no idea that God would put us in the place that we are when we started this 10 years ago. There's a place to belong when you follow Jesus. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. It doesn't matter what your present is. There's a place to belong in the Church of Jesus Christ wherever you're at, and Christ City is just one of those places. And Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is revealing himself to an unworthy people, that you are showing yourself to be great, greater than any greatness in all of creation, that you are showing yourself to be good and loving and merciful. And I pray that this truth would, would, would shape our lives, that it would cause us to be a people who trust in you uh, in, in seasons of, of plenty and, and, and in hard times, that we'd be a people who um, extend the same grace and mercy that we've received from you to others. We ask that you would do this work in us, that you would shape us and grow us in these ways for your glory, for the good of your church, and for the sake of this neighborhood. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.